You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jeff Hertzberg, MD, with pastry chef Zoe Francois, is the author of The New Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day, The New Healthy Bread in Five Minutes a Day, Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day, Healthy Bread in Five Minutes a Day, Artisan Pizza and Flatbread in Five Minutes a Day, Gluten-Free Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day, and Holiday and Celebration Bread in Five Minutes a Day. They are the creators of the Bread in Five website, the Bread in Five blog. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Jeff. Thanks, Rick. Pleasure to be back. This is an incredible book and an incredible method. So give us just the the basic overview of what you're talking about here when you're talking about making bread in five minutes a day. It seems like counterintuitive. Well, it is counterintuitive. Uh, intuitively, you do it the way we've been doing it the last 10,000 years, um, which is to knead the dough, and it's got to be used right away in the same day it was made, maybe a day later. But what we did that was different was we made a wet dough, a wetter dough, and we experimented with how long you could store that dough in the refrigerator, and it turns out if you get the moisture just about right, And you store it, you can store it for up to two weeks in the refrigerator and break off a piece if you need to every day, every other day, just to make the amount you're going to use up within two weeks for the basic loaf. Uh, And it's the active time only. And that's the disclaimer. So if it's sitting there, we're not counting the time it's rising on the counter before you put it in the fridge. We're not counting the time in the oven. And you don't have to knead dough that's this wet. We're not the only people in the world who've ever made uh, a, a wet dough. Wet doughs sort of find their own alignment of the gluten strands. Uh, there's some chemistry in there that we don't need to get into. But if it's wet enough, they're mobile and they can catch up with each other. It's kind of like dragging a hook through a barrel full of ropes. If you do that a few times, that's kneading. But if there was water in there and there were little magnetic charges on the ropes, they could sort of align themselves because they're mobile in there. That's how wet dough works. And so if you're able to do that, the five minutes a day is how much active time it takes. You just pull a piece out and you shape it and you let it sit for 40 to 90 minutes and then into the oven. So the sitting time and the oven time doesn't count. So it's great uh, if you want to come home from work and do that and you've got some time or on the weekend uh, when it can sit for for that amount of time. But uh, much, much less mess. You only mix once than the traditional method. Much more likely people will actually stop buying bread from the supermarket if they do this. And it's so much better. Uh, I agree. I've stopped buying bread. And in fact, I can't remember the last time I bought bread. So I think one of the things that... Uh, as we start this process out, and I remember myself starting out many years ago, was that it really helps, I think, to get the kind of the right equipment. It's, there's not much, but those a couple of simple things make your life much, much simpler. Let's start with something that pretty much anybody who cooks should have, which is a good scale. Uh, I have a scale yeah. that weighs 
weigh up to maybe two or three pounds, but also weighs in grams. And this makes it so much easier. So talk about uh, the import of a scale. So I really like the scale. And I should say that when we started doing this, our first book was, oh my gosh, it was 13 years ago. Um, <laughs> the, the very first version of our first book, we did not have weights as equivalencies for the amount of flour, which we talked about in cup measures. And the problem with cup measures is it all depends on how heavy a hand you use to drag that cup through the flour and level it off. Now, we recommend if people don't want to use a scale or don't have one, that they use the scoop and sweep method. There are two methods for using a cup measure. We just run that cup measure through a bin of flour uh, sort of gently, don't pack it in there, and then just sweep off the, off the top. Don't spoon it into the cup. That's going to give you too light of a cup. But the better way to do it, and all of our subsequent books after that, uh, the first go-round, we, we have a weight equivalent because we know that it became more popular for Americans to start to bake the way Europeans do, which is to use a scale. And frankly, the grams are more straightforward than the English-American weights. Uh, but you can use either. Our books have both now. Um, and you just weigh the ingredients right into whatever you're going to mix in. And it could be a, a bucket that you buy with a lid that you can vent. But it can also be a soup pot or, so, or a bowl you already have. You don't have to buy a lot of equipment. I do recommend the scale. They've gotten cheaper. Uh, you can get a decent one for tw on the order of $20. You don't have to spend a lot. And uh, certainly should be weighing your flour that way, if, if, if you have a choice. Now, for me, two other essential pieces are I have in front of me, actually, a four-quart, four-liter plastic uh, bucket, kind of. And, and mm -hmm. that's what I put on the scale to weigh. I just put it right. on the scale, I tear it out, and then I put in, right. pour in 910 grams of uh, all-purpose flour um and it's super easy take you know it takes no time and the other thing i have is a six quart six liter uh square kind of bucket and this is what i actually make the bread in and then that nicely slots into the very bottom part of my refrigerator so i can uh make make the recipe store it throw it in the refrigerator, and like you say, just reach in and grab out a chunk when I want to cook. That's right. That's right. So, so you can do it. If you have the right configuration in your fridge and your buckets, you can mix in the same storage vessel, the same thing. So you mm -hmm. have one. The fewer things to clean, the better. So part of my, when I was thinking about this, I was a medical resident, and everything was – oriented to laziness. I don't want to have to wash two buckets <laughs> when I could possibly wash one and actually maybe none because if it's a dough without any perishables in it, if it's just flour, water, yeast, and salt, which is the classic makeup of bread, you don't ever have to wash the bucket. You can just keep building a new batch right on top of your old and you'll jumpstart the sourdough flavor, which we didn't talk about, but dough storage as we do you begin to get a flavor that's reminiscent of and, and has some of the elements of a true sourdough, which most people, well, certainly when I was a medical resident, I didn't have time for. Um, now, this past you know, 12 months, 
it, this, this hobby became so popular that yeast became unavailable. And people started to use our true sourdough method, which is from the new healthy bread in five minutes a day. It's also on our website. It's on breadin5.com. So there's a, it is a lot more work, and we don't claim true sourdough is five minutes a day because you've got to maintain it. You've got to bring it up. You've got to basically raise it from a baby. And uh, to be honest with you, I don't typically do that. I, I approximate a sourdough effect by using a little bit of the old dough in the new batch. That's how I end up not washing anything ever, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. The the weighing thing, all I ever weigh in it is flour. So I weigh the flour uh, in that. Yeah, yeah. And then um, in the in the square one where I keep make the actually make the dough, I uh, weigh 680 grams of water, heat it up for one minute and two seconds in the microwave, which brings it to just under 100, between 90 and 100 degrees, which is, I think, where you want it, right? Yeah, you want under 100. Yeah. Exactly. And, and then you, uh, then I just throw in the yeast, throw in the salt, uh, pour the water into the square thing, throw in the yeast, throw in the salt, mix it up, put in the... Uh, uh, pour in the flour and then use the, the French or Danish wire whisk. Danish, <laughs> yeah, right. It's a heavyweight whisk. Uh, you can hand mix it with a spoon. You can also use a, a, a stand mixer. It's really good as well. People have those. You don't need it, though. Mm, I, that's, that's the thing. Is it, is it's all very simple. And then you put that. Um, one thing that I found incredibly helpful for me is I have an oven that has a proof setting. So it keeps the uh, the oven at 100 degrees. And that mm -hmm. is super invaluable whenever you're raising bread, either raising the initial raise, because what you do is, so, but, well, go, why don't you go through that, the process. We, we yeah, yeah. mix it, and then so you, what happens? You do this super fast mix. Just get it all together. It's going to be a wet dough. It's not going to look like traditional dough. And if you were to try to knead it, it would all stick to your fingers. So don't even do that. As soon as it comes together, uh, it sits on the counter. If it's, as you suggested, warmish water, in about two hours, it will have doubled or so in size, although you don't have to be persnickety about this because it's going to rise more in the fridge. Uh, in about two hours, it'll about double. Um, you can then put it in the refrigerator and start to use it over two weeks. You can also use it immediately. So you shape it. Uh, we, we like to have people start off with a one pound loaf that you do, uh, in your, just it with your hands. You can shape, you can put some flour on the top of that surface in the bucket, um, scoop out some dough with your hands, cut it off with a kitchen shears or a serrated knife and start to shape it into a ball. Ball is the easiest shape, the French, what they call a boule, which just means a ball shaped bread. You shape it by sort of bringing the top around to the sides and you put flour around it, but you're not trying to incorporate the flour in. And the mistake people make is thinking that it's like traditional dough. And every recipe I've ever read from the traditional repertoire says, knead the dough with your fingers until it's no longer sticky uh, and you don't, uh, it feels silky. And invariably to get especially moist dough like this, if you were to get it to the point where it's not sticky at all, it's now dry dough. And most beginners will then end up with a very dry loaf. And it's one of the reasons people give up on the hobby. So with ours, we're saying, you know, the dough is too wet to do that. 
just keep the flour on the outside and just kind of shape it. Should take 40 seconds or so. And it frankly doesn't matter what shape it is if you're not persnickety about that. And then drop it on a, it could be a pizza peel. You don't have to buy a pizza peel when you're starting out. You could use anything. You could use a cutting board that you can, you're going to slide it off into the oven. But if you prepare that cutting board or pizza peel with either parchment paper, cornmeal works well. If you like a cornmeal sort of crust on the bottom, which I do, um, you put that on the board and it then sits depending on the size of the loaf, you can get by with 40 minutes for a one pound bowl. Um, 90 minutes is even better, especially if the dough has been in the refrigerator. And then you slide it into a hot oven and hopefully you've got a bread stone or pizza stone in there, but you don't absolutely have to have one. Um, Heavyweight baking sheets are just fine. Um, Thin baking sheets, you can tend to get some burning underneath there. Um, but I hate that people have to go out and instantly buy all this equipment. You can get a decent result that's much better than store-bought bread with stuff you probably have in the house already. That's exactly what I did. I just dug up some old Tupperware to, to uh, uh, make the dough in, and, and I had an old pizza peel and our pizza stone, and that was it. And it was it was super easy. Now, um, the the other, for me... Eventually, one of the things that I like is now I've finally figured out how to make, like, loaves of bread because it's easy to make a, a loaf of bread that's – if you only have two people in the house, which is where I'm at, you don't need that much bread. And like say, a pound of – a nice pound, one-pound loaf will, get, will um, serve two people for three or four days. It'll stay fresh. Um I, I like to have like a loaf-shaped loaf, mm-hmm. and it took me years, but I finally found an exactly uh, a pan that was six and seven eighths by three and a half by three and a half or something, uh-huh. a, a little aluminum pan, and all I do is I rub butter inside that, then I cut up a, a little piece of parchment paper and fold it up so it can sit inside there, then I put a little butter on the parchment paper, and then... Out of the um, standard issue, master recipe, you can get three one-pound loaves in, and you just put your little um, loaf pan on on your uh, on your scale, and you can just measure out exactly one pound. You can get three loaves uh-huh. that are exactly the same shape that cook in exactly the same time, and all <laughs> delicious and fresh. Uh, That's so, fantastic. Um, but one of the things I think that um, this book does is it really inspires you to, because it's so easy to succeed, um, this book is really inspires one to experiment oneself to you know go out and say, okay, this would be a little bit easier if I did this and I could add mm-hmm. this. So talk about you know writing a cookbook that is you know lead, intentionally leading to experimentation on the part of the, of the reader and the cook. What what really is funny about what you just said is that my own thinking and Zoe's thinking <clears throat> over the 13 years we've been writing, it evolves. And people sometimes come to the website uh, and, and people can come on the website and ask questions. We actually answer them ourselves. Uh, we don't do all the posting anymore. We have a wonderful food blogger in her own right, Sarah Kiefer, who works with us. Uh, she wrote a book called The Vanilla Bean Baking Book. Um, 
but we, Zoe and I are actually the ones who answer the questions. And one of the questions we sometimes get is, uh, why did you say in the first book, and I'm going to go back to your low pen experience, why did you say in the first book that you just have to use a nonstick loaf pan because this wet dill will stick to it? And the answer, and later on, we didn't say that. In the later books, we say, you know, it works pretty well to just do exactly what Rick Kleffel just did, which is to heavily grease a, a thin aluminum, garden variety, cheap uh, loaf pan, uh, pan loaf bread pan, and it, it, it comes out. And here's what we experimented with that I found worked fine. And we don't use the parchment, although that is fail-safe. Basically, if you, heavy, if you grease it heavily, what you will find is it often sticks at the end. You bake it. It'll usually take a little longer than doing it with uh, freeform because it's, you're trapping the water in there. It's got to be driven off. Um, if you take it out of the oven and let it sit without disturbing it for about 10 or 15 minutes, it kind of steams itself out of the pan. And then you can take a table knife and run it around the edge and it'll pop right out. So I stopped using, I stopped recommending the nonstick. A lot of people don't like nonstick because it scratches and they think they're eating the nonstick coating and there are chemicals in that. And I'm not crazy about that. I'd rather just use a, a plain aluminum pan like you do. We, in the books, we, uh, we tend to use the standard eight and a half by four and a half, not the smaller one you just mentioned. And that takes uh, almost well, two pounds to make it nice and generous, the way people want to have big sandwich slices. I've also done the mini loaf pans, which are even smaller than what you're using. Those work great, too. Mm. But your idea is wonderful. Now, one of the things about these books is it's a lot more than just bread. Mm-hmm. You you um any of these kind of uh, doughs can be repurposed, and, and one of the things, for example, chala dough, which is makes a fabulous bread. It's really delicious. Is mm-hmm. very easily repurposed. <laughs> sometimes regrettably, if you get over enthusiastic, <laughs> as uh, cinnamon rolls. So talk about oh, yeah. how easy it is yeah. to just repurpose a dough that is maybe meant for savory uh, consumption and turn it into. Uh, a hell-bendingly delicious dessert. <laughs> sure, sure. So uh, when my co-author and I met, oh my gosh, 18 years ago, Zoe Francois is a pastry chef, so she's professionally trained at the Culinary Institute of America. And she, all through her career, from restaurants and then onto the world of cookbooks, has been focused on dessert. And I told her that I had been fooling around with this recipe. This is in 2003, and it works. And would you try? We became friends through our kids, uh, which is the way people with kids become friends with other adults once you have kids. Because <laughs> uh, you got no time to talk to folks. And we were actually in a music class with, a little, with our two year olds, both of whom are in college now. Um, I think they were three. Anyway, I said, this is just a regular, it's the bread you've been describing. It was most of what I was making in the early 2000s. Actually started working on it probably in 1988 uh, when I was a medical resident. And they're just savory bread, standard, you know, white and rye bread, sort of country loaves, uh, sort of a lot of moisture, a lot of good chew. uh, And it's five minutes a day. What do you think? And she goes, I don't think that'll work. Uh, But she tried it and she thought it was good. She thought it was very good. And she said, well, I would work with you, but only if you're willing to have the books have a significant 
chapter or generous chapter that's devoted to enriched breads. Things like challah, as you mentioned, things like brioche, which are sort of the two levels of egg and butter enrichment that are in our books. And you can do anything with them. You can make them into cinnamon rolls, pecan buns, uh, obviously challah and traditional French brioche, which is also there's an Italian brioche that's pretty much the same thing. Um, you can sweeten it additionally. You can put nuts in it. You can put raisins in it. You can also just make it into sandwich bread, either of those levels of enrichment. I think of it as the, you know, how many sticks of, sticks of butter. The, the challah has basically one stick. The brioche has two, or is it, is it three? Depends how much you make. Uh, both of them make great sandwich breads in a loaf pan, even though that's not traditional. It's fantastic, exactly like that. Now, the other thing that people started to experiment with, even before we did, was they took the basic white bread recipe and they used that dough in the, the cinnamon rolls. And there's so much sweetener and cinnamon and honey that you put on top of it. It's actually very credible and it isn't quite as indulgent, but it's quite good and you can use it as the same dough. So typically for me, I just have one kind of dough around the house that I do different things with. So if I have a dough that's mostly white flour, all purpose is what most people have in the house, and maybe 10, 15, 20% rye, I can use that. That will pass as just about anything. It'll pass as a French or Italian country loaf. Um, you can use it as a plain white bread. I use it for pita bread. If you roll it out flat and just let it puff in a 500-degree oven on a stone, it puffs up a beautiful pita bread. Um, you can also make pizza on it. Um, you can even do pizza on enriched doughs like challah and brioche. Completely different effect. We actually have some sweet pizzas in some. In what, I forgot exactly which book that ended up in. And certainly they're on the website. You know, you talked about pizza. Boy, you can make some amazingly good pizzas. It took me years to figure out a way that worked for me. And, and the way I would do it is, is completely wrong. But... Um, you have a recipe in there for using the double zero dough, which you can buy in a very convenient 2.2 pound bag uh, uh -huh. from from the store. And that's just the, you don't even have to measure it. You just... Oh, my God. It, I didn't know a, about that product. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, it, it, it's a double zero dough. I think it's caputo. And you... Okay. you you, it's 2.2 pounds. It, it's the, the recipe. It's dead simple. That, uh, three okay, cups so, of water. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you've got an incredibly delicious pizza dough. And, and that's a super useful thing to be able to have because it's very easy to make a pizza when you have the dough right there. Right, right, right. I'm, I just pulled that recipe out as you were going through it. That is great to know because we did mention Caputo. And we called for two pounds, two ounces. One of the things you're going to realize if people fool around with our books, two ounces doesn't make much difference. No. And I would never open up a new bag for two ounces more of flour. It'll just be a teeny bit wetter. <clears throat> the wetter you use a pizza dough, the, sort of, the more sort of challenging it can be to get it to roll out flat and get it to fly off, that, off of that uh, pizza peel when you need to get it in the oven the key with pizza is have all your toppings ready in advance because <clears throat> once you, you stretch out your dough flat <clears throat> if it sits there while you go like you know pressing a tomato to get the liquid out of it <clears throat> it's going to glue itself to the pizza board 
and you don't want that. <clears throat> you know, uh, one that I find that uh, for me, um, I could could just never get a, a the the dough off the the peel. So what I do was do is to take uh, I'll take a I use a again the aluminum pan and I just put some up uh, you know a pretty I slather it a bit with the olive oil and then I just press I let the pizza dough sit for about 30 or 40 minutes and I just press it out so it's very thin and it covers the entire bottom of the aluminum pan and you can get like a 16 inch aluminum pan so you can make a pretty hefty pizza with 16 inches um and it when you put that in the oven and cook it the bottom comes out super crispy but you still get a nice little puff on top and and you can also um i have found it helps to um i guess uh, what's uh, there's a a technical term for um pre-cooking the pizza before you put the stuff on baking it's called baking blind baking blind right right yes baking blind it's often a good idea to bake blind. It never hurts. It speeds things up. Some ovens, maybe the crust will get overdone by the end, but it, for most people, baking blind isn't a bad idea at all. You brought to mind something else. The way you're doing it on an aluminum pan that's pre-greased, and you're not going through this sliding off the pizza peel with flour, and that can be a little tricky till you're experienced. In the book, in the Artisan Pizza and Flatbread and Five that we wrote, we call that a Sicilian style. It's a New York Sicilian slice. So they do it in a big, um, well, it's a half sheet or quarter sheet, a heavyweight rimmed aluminum pan. And if you grease it well, you can make a thick crusted pizza. You don't have to worry about anything sticking because basically that bottom crust, as you suggest, it basically fries and browns and the top will billow out. And it really comes out well. It's, you cannot miss with that. What you described, you can't miss. What people want, though, often, is they want to somehow recreate this Neapolitan style, which is a very thin crust that's freeform. It's not in a pan. doesn't have oil on the bottom. It usually has flour. You can use cornmeal. It's more of an American style. But you've got to work quickly or it'll stick to the peel. And so people could try your method first. Kids love that thick crust with a sort of fried bottom with olive oil. It's great. But the as you were saying, um, the the thin pizzas. That's why we have the the pizza margarita, which just has right. essentially a little cheese, a couple of tomatoes, and, and some some basil leaves on on top because it's that's very okay. thin and, and mm-hmm. the but it's extremely flavorful. Now, mm-hmm. um, one of the things I I do want to mention is you have an entire book dedicated to gluten free. Uh, artisan bread in five minutes a day. This mm-hmm. is really important because a lot of people uh, f- have found their systems don't tolerate gluten. They like it or they, they're just healthier or ha- their stomachs are happier. So talk about having developed the method for flour and just, you know, flour, salt, water, or yeast um, to, to have to reinvent the wheel with something uh, to get rid of the main thing that makes bread bread. Right. You're absolutely right. Uh, it was challenging. We, we basically, the publisher uh, and we sort of were getting all these questions. What people wanted to do was to use the New Artisan Bread in Five or its original version from 2007 and just swap out the all-purpose flour 
for some gluten-free all-purpose flour product that you buy in the supermarket because that would be very easy. And we actually tried that, and it did not work. It failed. It's, it was like a rock. Um, it was a doorstop. The reason why is that most, at least in our searching, gluten-free flours that are commercial mixtures, they're usually a mixture of you know, tapioca, rice, maybe sorghum, something that doesn't have gluten. Right. So gluten is in wheat and all of its variants. It's a protein that's in wheat, it's in rye, it's in barley, but also all these wheat variants that nobody quite realizes are wheat, but Frika, Durham, I'm trying to think of all the ones we have, Spelt, uh, Faro, those are all variant versions of wheat, uh, and they have some, they have some, some gluten in it. And, and for people who have celiac disease, they can't eat it. So unfortunately, gluten is what allows a wheat dough to trap gas when yeast, whether it's natural or commercial, does their, do their me- metabolic process and they eat up starches and sugars in dough and they kick off carbon dioxide, which makes little bubbles. And if you don't have something that gives structure to that, those don't get trapped and it doesn't expand and it ends up as a total doorstop. You can make maybe a flatbread out of it, a very thin, something more like a tortilla, but something with little holes, with air holes in it, you can't get that to work. So because most of the products that are on the market as a commercial mixture weren't designed for bread, they were designed for cookies mostly, I think is the truth. And other sweets were getting a, a sort of a lofty rise isn't the object. They either didn't have enough or didn't have any of a structure creating substance, usually a gum. So traditionally, well, there's no, there's not really a gluten-free tradition, but commercially they've used uh, a gum like xanthan gum. Guar gum does not work. So xanthan gum is sort of a natural product. It's sort of not a natural product. It's natural in the sense that uh, it's, it's a natural product of a bacteria that exists in nature that isn't particularly foreign, uh, but then they refine it and they get a gum out of it. And if you, it's a powder and you mix it in with a flour and it creates enough structure to trap gas. We started to experiment with ground psyllium husk, which actually is a natural product. Uh, psyllium... I hate to even say what most people know psyllium is, is used in. It's used in Metamucil, which is a fiber supplement people take sometimes uh, that aids in digestion. So ground psyllium husk is available. Uh, there's a, there's, we don't have a – I'm not endorsing any particular product, but Bob's Red Mill has a product for ground psyllium husk. So we like that. It's sort of a more natural product. It's just a, basically a fiber supplement that comes from a psyllium seed. It's a natural grain that isn't really used for much else but this. And that creates structure also, even though it's not a gum. So you've got to use one or the other. And we made our own flour mixtures, again, because we uh, didn't find that the commercial mixtures worked very well. So once we did that, we have a mixture number one, which is white flours, and a mixture number two, which is all whole wheat, and you can start to blend them and play with them. Um, we found we were able to adopt, adapt pretty much every recipe from our standard book, which is Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day, the new Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day, for a gluten-free version. And that book is fairly successful in it. 
in a niche space. I should say, you know, as a physician, I'm not suggesting that everybody needs to eat gluten-free. The, the only people where there's clear evidence is that if you have celiac disease diagnosed by a doctor, those people can't eat wheat, rye, barley, or the variants, and this book is a fit for them. We're not suggesting everybody needs to stop. Uh, there, there's really no evidence for that. But at the same time, if somebody says, they keep testing me, I don't have celiac disease, but I feel better when I don't eat wheat. We really don't know what to say to those folks, except if, if, it's, wor- if it's working for you not to eat this one thing, don't eat it. But we're not trying to sell this book to everybody. It's for, it's for a narrow niche. No, exactly. Um, you know, uh, one of the, you mentioned wheat bread. I, fresh wheat bread is so good. And what's interesting about wheat bread is you can really notice the difference in the kinds of flours you buy. Um, we have a place up here called Community Grains. It's a local place. You can go up there. Uh, you have to go to some arcane place in Oakland. It's upstairs. <laughs> and it's just piled with, with boxes of flour. <laughs> but um, talk about how uh, the the difference in the flour can make a big difference in the taste of the wheat bread. I just made some uh, wheat bread last night from the uh, uh, 100% whole wheat bread recipe, and I think is it it's in uh, healthy bread in five minutes a day. And boy, uh-huh. it tastes amazingly good. You can just the taste. You don't think of bread as often is having that much taste but wheat whole wheat bread can just really bring a whole lot of flavor to the to the plate well i i've always felt that way i always felt even if you're making a white bread if you just put a couple tablespoons of whole grain flour in it and i personally i like whole grain rye i think it's even more flavorful than wheat i was gonna ask about that yeah i really like a white bread made with a tablespoon or two of of whole grain rye. Most rye you can buy in a supermarket is whole grain. It's very hard to find what I guess I would call brand depleted or what they call medium rye. It's never in stores. You have to mail away for it. So I just never use medium rye, which is this sort of brand depleted. Plus, I, I like the, the, the health effect of, of whole grain. I think people should try to eat more whole grain. The problem is not everybody loves it like you do. I do. So whole wheat, the, ex, the bran on the outside, is a little bit bitter, and it's very flavorful. I just love it. Sometimes kids who've been raised on pure white bread find that too strong of a flavor, and they just won't eat it. And we knew that if we started out with whole grains as sort of an emphasis, a lot of families and a lot of Americans, frankly, they prefer white bread. It's this incredibly elemental flavor. Um, and it's got a more open crumb structure that some people will prefer. The problem, as you point out, though, is there's variability in the brands of whole wheat. Um, some of them have a rougher grind. Some of them have a little more protein than the others. And if you're using a lot of, if you're using 100% whole wheat, basically you have to adjust the water to account for the way it absorbs water because of the grind being different and because of the protein level different. And so... If you know what our dough should feel like so that it's wet, but not so wet that it's a, it's a mess <laughs> and not so wet that it's, it doesn't ever bake through, 
you can sort of adjust the, what we call the hydration, the ratio of the water to the flour, a little bit based on flours you're using that might be different from standard supermarket whole wheat. And it depends what's available in your store. So when we wrote Healthy Bread in Five Minutes a Day and the new Healthy Bread in Five Minutes a Day, well, the difference in those books, when we upgraded it, we tried to give people what the adjustment would be for, I think, six different brands of flour. But I would, what I would love to say, sort of, if I had it to do over again, I might just say, here's what it's supposed to look like. You, you've been making the white version, right? So get experienced with our method before you make 100%, which is trickier um, because of the way the whole wheat flours behave. You know what it's supposed to look like, so you can handle it, but it's pretty wet, but not so wet that it's falling apart, um, or that it spreads crazily when you do a free-form loaf. Just adjust the hydration based on the flour you use. And this became really noticeable when people started to write in on the website about home ground flour. So they'd obtain wheat berries, wheat grains, you know, they'd get 50, a 50 pound sack of wheat berries from a, a granary or a farmer, some of these, I don't know where people are mail ordering wheat berries and they were buying these grinders and finding that the, the, the sort of the moisture level in those grains was different based on who they got it from. So mm. that, that really threw off the hydration. And of course, how finely ground they did it also changed that. And so we started this, especially for home ground flowers, you've got to adjust the water. You can't use our absolute ratios. And that was sort of the magic of our books because traditionally um, the, the recipes were always intimidating because it said, you know, you just adjust the flour in the water, you keep adding flour until it looks right. Well, people didn't know that who were beginners. And so if you want to make 100% whole grain bread, whole wheat, what people call wheat bread, of course, white, white bread is also a wheat-based bread, um, but whole grain wheat bread, the trick is it does vary by brand. And the other thing is that for a lot of our readers, they find a a, a, a stored dough, whole grain wheat bread starts to get too dense. So we did something to counter that, which was we added a little extra gluten. Um, you don't have to do it. Um, the recipes can be done without adding what's called vital wheat gluten. But for a lot of our readers who are looking for a loftier bread, uh, we, I don't, tell me if you're doing the 100% whole wheat with or without vital wheat gluten. I've done it both ways. I, um, this time around, I did it without, but usually I do use the the wheat gluten, the, the yeah, yeah. vital wheat gluten, because it really does give it a, a puffier puff, as it were. Right. And yeah. but this time, here's another question for you that I'm sure I know you've encountered on your website. I think I asked it about using what's called bread flour as opposed to all-purpose flour. Um, sure. That that. Is it that requires more hydration? Am I correct? That's all. That's all it is. Yeah, it works great in our recipes. You've got to add a little bit of, in, in the basic recipe, which calls for um, uh, six and a half cups of, of flour. We recommend if you use bread flour to go ahead. I'm sort of stalling here because I can't remember if it was a third of a cup or a quarter of a cup, but it needs a little more water because otherwise it, it'll end up looking pretty much like a dry dough that won't store very well. 
So it's a quarter cup extra water. If that's you what use. I used. Cause, yeah, because that's, yeah, yeah. that's exactly what I used. To, and I was just trying to remember it. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. I, hey, I, I just told my wife, this is gonna, we might have bricks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I misspoke. It's, it's a third of a cup. Oh, it's is a it? quarter cup. Yeah, it, it's not going to make a big difference. You mm-hmm. think of it, it's like, that's a twelfth of a cup difference between a third and a quarter. Um, it's not a big deal. But in the books, we say if you use a bread flour. Oh, and by the way, bread flours vary in how much protein. There's a there's a flour out there that's called. So basically, bread flour uses a wheat berry, a wheat grain that has more protein in it, more, but it's gluten. So more structure, more chew. It takes more water. So there's a there's a flour out there that's not called bread flour. It's called high protein flour, and that's like a super bread flour. And and that, that I don't necessarily recommend that, but you could probably use it. Just use a little more than a third of a cup, or a little bit less flour, and you you create a bread that holds its shape a little better. It works great in bagels and pretzels, which we have in the book. Things that you really want to hold the shape, uh, baguette isn't traditionally made with high protein flour. Actually, in France, it's made with something around what what all purpose is. It's sort of more tender. But you can make a, a d- delicious baguette or French boule with, uh, with a bread flour. The reason we didn't go standard with bread flour is we wanted people who got the book for a holiday gift or something to be able to use whatever flour they already have in the house. And most people have all-purpose flour in the house. And so that's why it's standard. Now, in your uh, dessert book, uh, mm-hmm. a, a <laughs> shockingly, the master recipe... Uh, Includes sugar. Oh. It sure does. Talk, talk about uh, going out there and trying to, to write a book about all these wonderful breads, stolen, um, Fevernusen. I mean, it's some. these are wonderful desserts, and they're super easy to make. And it's so nice to have that kind of, when you're able to make that bread that easily, you can make yourself, you know, a nice kind of a sweet roll for breakfast too, which is, yep. you know, yep. it's delicious. It's super fresh. You made it. You know what's in it, and it's a much less expensive than stopping off at the local coffee shop. That's right. So a whole one pound loaf, we calculate fifty-ish cents per loaf. Yeah, you put some time into it, but you're not. We don't get paid for making these breads in our own house. So about the the dessert book, which is called. Uh, holiday and celebration bread in five minutes a day came out, I guess, about 11 months ago now. It's our most recent book. You're right. The master recipe isn't a challah. It isn't a brioche. It's a slightly sweetened, slightly enriched white bread. And one of the reasons for that is it's sort of a way of people experimenting, getting their, getting their feet wet with a slightly enriched dough. And you can make a, a great traditional white bread. Tra- I should say traditional American white bread in a loaf pan that's very soft. Uh, we bake it at a lower temperature. Remember, my, my co-author is a pastry chef, and she's thinking, how do I sweeten these things up? Um, and so there's that. The other thing is that, as we said sort of at the outset, you can use a white, fl- a, a, a white recipe that doesn't, really, that doesn't have eggs in it to make a brio- to make these sort of brioche specialties and morning breads with sweetener, with honey, with raisins, with fruit, with compote, that sort of thing. And so that becomes the standard in that book for either a slightly enriched white bread uh, or you can use them in these shapes. So that book has all these wacky, fun shapes. 
and holiday breads from around the world as holidays are coming up. Oh, plus donuts. I'd probably not make the donuts out of the white recipe, but you can. You can. Uh, I, one of the, I love the, the kind of variety that you bring in this book, Mallorca buns. <laughs> what yeah, a great yeah. treat. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty rich, right? So uh, we tried to, basically nobody can travel, so you can travel around the world uh, by making these breads because nobody's going anywhere now. I certainly haven't been on a plane in 11 months or whatever it is. You know, um, I think, too, what's really nice about this book is how easy it is to, like, make a loaf of bread and share it with your family because you can make, when you... uh, make the recipe the the dough you're making enough for you know two or three big loaves and it's it, it kind of uh, allows you you know to share with the family and to you know make cooking a, a real part of your family life and sharing food a part of your family life which it has always been for humanity and i think that you know modern uh, civilization has blunted that a bit by virtue of, you know, lots of frozen food. (laughs) Right. I mean, one of the things in the pandemic is we're all obsessed with how are we going to get together and we use some sort of digital device to connect with other people and making bread with your hands and then sharing it with people. We've had, we've done this where we leave, we leave a couple of loaves on somebody's porch. Um, it's a way of connecting that's the opposite of digital. It's the ultimate analog connection. I mean, I'd, I'd prefer to be able to get together and eat these things, but we can at the moment. But something tactile you do with your hands, I think, is comforting. And then, of course, your, uh, your house has this unbelievable aroma, and it's wintertime, so we don't mind eating up the house with that, um, with that bread, bread vapor coming out of the oven. I want you to talk about something that's really fun to do. Um, if you, when in your copious pandemic spare time, which is braided breads, uh, making yeah. chalas, and you can do some really complicated kind of knots where where it's almost like a, a geometry problem where you've got you have six sticks of bread. You're tasked with winding them together and coming out with something that doesn't look like a, an extra prop from Alien. Right, right. So, so by far and away, the easiest braided loaf is a three-stranded. I mean, it's traditional. There's a traditional Jewish version that's called challah. There are Greek versions. There are Italian versions that are basic three strands. Um, and you can't describe it over the radio. I just, I can't describe how to do it. You basically take, put the three strands lined up next to each other and you take the outer strand and you put it over the middle and you do the reverse till you get to the end. You can also start from the middle and go to the two ends, uh, which makes it a little more even. So I started to go through this once in a class. We, Zoe and I both teach classes. And usually I would say it's majority women or vast majority women. At least it was when we were doing a lot of teaching uh, at the beginning of this process. There are a lot of young men now who are cooking. Apparently the cooking channel has a tremendous demographic of young men who are learning to cook, especially in the pandemic. But anyway, so I got the three strands out and I said, if you've never braided before, and I start to go through my routine and the women all laugh, said, women know how to braid. Everybody has hair. Um, and so 
it's straightforward to do the three strand. It's not straightforward to do the six strand, and Zoe covers it in the holiday book. You can also do a sort of a woven one and make a small bun. It's almost like if you think of it the way those potholder arts and crafts projects worked when we were kids in camp, you can sort of make a square out of it and weave them, and it's beautiful too. You can also make a challah that is, uh, and it doesn't have to be challah, it can be anything, that's shaped like a turban where you just, this is the easiest one actually, you just get a long rope of dough. Actually, it's nicer if, the, if one end is thin and the other end is kind of thick, and you plant the thick end in the middle of whatever you're going to be building the loaf on, and you wind it around that middle piece, and it bakes up with this beautiful sort of, looks like a snail shell almost. It's beautiful. Sort of like the, the conchas. I don't think we have that in the book, though. Or do we? can't remember now. <laughs> you, you do have a lot of sticky caramel nut rolls. Uh, yep. These are really delicious, and, and I'd like you to talk about, um, you know, both making all these desserts, but also, <laughs> I have to admit, uh, from personal experience, controlling consumption of dessert, <laughs> of dessert yeah. bread. Anyway, the problem is, I I had to to put a a local ban on brioche bread because. <laughs> It was, it was, I was accumulating faster than the bread was. <laughs> I get it. I get it. So when I started this hobby, we had a full house of people and then we had a full house that included two teenagers. And mm-hmm. if I baked something, you know, easy availability, uh, and I baked something maybe sweet, maybe not sweet, but it was, a, if it was a one pound loaf and it's just sitting around. You can hack off pieces of it and start. Before you know it, you're eating half a loaf of. It's not too bad if it's whole wheat bread, but if it's a white brioche, you really don't want to eat a half pound of that yourself every day. Um, and so I have found ways, uh, especially now that my wife and I are empty nesters. Uh, remember, I said that when I met my co-author, we both had kids that were two, and now they're both sophomores, juniors in college. Um, I'm an empty nester now. I either make small ones or hard to admit, but I sometimes, if I make an ordinary sized loaf, I'll either slice it and freeze it and chisel off a piece for myself when I want it by defrosting that one piece or toasting it. Mm. I don't necessarily want to have a one pound or even two pound loaf if I make that eight and a half by four and a half. I don't necessarily want an eight and a half by four and a half loaf sitting around for me, especially since I'm, my office is in the home right now. Mm. Um, uh, Cause I'll start hacking. That's, that's a snack. Then an hour later, it's another snack. It's hard. You, I basically make less of it at a time. Is the short answer to your question. Um, you know, uh, one of the things I thought was interesting was in the, in the holiday book was some of the, uh, uh, savory things. I mean, a, a ricotta stuffed donut. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. Um, I mean, most parts of the world don't have quite the sweet tooth that Americans do. Mm. And yeah, they'll use a savory filling, um, Italian style cheesecake or this, uh, this Italian filled donut. Ricotta is in the mix in a way, you know, we'd have cream cheese and a lot of sugar and less so in Europe. 
my uh, my grandparents came from from Europe, and they could not understand why stuff was so sweet. It just it just they didn't understand it. And when Zoe and I started working together, she said she's a pastry chef, and I don't have that sweet of a sweet tooth. And what I noticed right away is that her brioche, which she is the one who brought the brioche to the book, for four pounds of dough, it only has a half of cup of sweetener. She uses honey. You could use sugar too. Um, <clears throat> that's not that sweet. It's it's a much more subtle effect to bring the flavors up, and I really appreciate that. Now, one thing I, that I think that uh, you brought to the party, and you mentioned this this flour earlier, was rye. I love making rye bread, and especially yeah. your uh, recipe for pumpernickel is outstanding. So, talk yeah. about uh, taking. Uh, I have no idea how. I mean, I much prefer the pumpernickel that comes from your recipe to anything I've ever seen in the store. So talk yeah. about uh, bringing those like really traditional breads from your home, from your youth um, into your book. Yeah. So I grew up in New York in the 1960s and 70s, uh, New York city and the corner bakery was a thing. So Jewish bakeries, Italian bakeries, some Greek bakeries, although I didn't grow up with that so much in my neighborhood. And you just developed a, a, a taste for, for breads that weren't from the supermarket and weren't prepackaged with preservatives and dopeners. So the, to me, the worst tasting thing in the world is uh, cellophane wrapped supermarket rye bread or pumpernickel. They're just bizarre. Even when they're perfectly fresh, they seem dry and flavorless to me. Mm-hmm. So those were the things that I wanted the most. And I moved to Minneapolis. I moved away from New York in 1987. And Minneapolis had, had already lost a lot of its corner, corner bread store, well, bakery, corner bakery tradition in the city. That's changed. We have great bakeries now in the Twin Cities. Um, but, you know, people talk about the best inventions in sliced bread. And I always thought, well, that was the worst invention because it's convenient, but no flavor. So I was looking for rye and pumpernickel. And those were the first things I worked on <clears throat> like when I was a medical resident. Again, I had no time. So um, just a little bit about the pumpernickel. Really traditional pumpernickel, either Eastern European or German, gets a lot of its flavor from a very rough ground rye called pumpernickel flour. Um, the pumpernickel breads in the United States, and it had a lot of that sort of dark bran in it, the pumpernickels in the United States always had a little bit of caramel color in it, which is really just burnt sugar, mm-hmm. uh, which brought some bitterness that was in that external layer of the pumpernickel. Uh, sometimes coffee, uh, always um, caraway seeds. And so we just adapted that. And we didn't use that much rye because rye is a complicated, it makes the dough kind of sticky. So we use about 20% rye, I believe, in both those recipes. Uh, the pumpernickel has the additives, the, the extra ingredients I just mentioned. Um, it's a little bit harder to handle than the plain rye. They're both terrific. And if, if, you've, if you've had the misfortune of having a cellophane-wrapped pumpernickel from the supermarket, it is completely a different product. It tastes nothing like it. It's really and, nothing to do with it. And if you're really... Uh 
slightly uh, have too much time on your hands, you can make a pumpernickel rye swirl where you take like half, right. a, half a pound of, of rye and lay it out right. flat. And then you put another half pound of pumpernickel and you just roll them up just like a jelly roll. And that's it, a, actually a great way to do it. That's not the way we did it in the book, but I really like that idea. I've been doing that for a while. It is makes a fabulous loaf of bread. It's very tasty. That it has great. little hints of sweetness and savory. You can just have that with a piece, with a little butter on it, toast it. It's oh, yeah. a great dessert yeah. or a great pick me up for breakfast. Um, so, uh, yeah, perfect, perfect. Uh, um, where did you go next? God, I don't know. That's a great <laughs> question. <laughs> I, I really, I really think we've said basically everything I can think of that we're ever going to need to say about about pastry. Um, I'm, I'm sorry about bread and and bread based yeast based pastries. So I don't know. It, I, I said this two or three books ago as well. So don't hold me to this. I'm sure we'll have another conversation if we ever do another book. At the moment, I'm I'm just not sure. I just I just. Not sure we are. Now, one of the things that's happening is that recipe content and the way people access recipe content is changing. So we started publishing cookbooks uh, in 2007. And for people just starting households now, like my kids, one of them is graduated from college, the other one will in a year and a half. They don't buy cookbooks. They intend to get recipe content. They both love to cook and bake. They get free recipe content over the internet. And so as we were ramping up our cookbook life, we ramped up a website that has a lot of content on it. And there is, people sometimes complain, but there is advertising on it. And so it's a completely different way of paying people to develop recipes and introduce people to new food. And if I had to guess, in 25 years, when this generation is got kids of their own, they're not going to have a shelf full of cookbooks in their kitchen. They're going to have indexed recipes that they're going to access through their phone or their tablet. And you got to figure out a way to pay people to do that work. Because by the way, it's really a lot of work to test recipes. We've been very lucky because we came in as that transition was happening. I'd say our biggest audience are people who are established in their households. They're not just out of college, although we have plenty of people like that too. In other words, people who still buy cookbooks, but we also have people who ju- we know they don't have our book and they come on the website and they're asking about things that are only on the website and we'll help them. Uh, sometimes we refer them back to the book. Sometimes we refer them back to other sites in the website, but we think the future is probably electronic and figuring out what that business is and how traditional publishers will relate to it, your guess is as good as mine. I've been speaking with Dr. Jeff Hertzberg. He's with Zoe Francois. He is the creator of the Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day Empire. It is an empire, and by these <laughs> books, they will change your life. You will find five years from now that you cannot remember the last time you bought a loaf of bread at a store. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure, as always.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.